Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's April the 19th, 2022. We've done a number of shows recently on billionaires. We did a show with Peter S. Goodman on um, what he calls Davos Man, how the billionaires have devoured our world, the billionaires of Davos, the Davos class. We've also done many, many shows on the Nazis. We did a show with Dara Horn, for example, um, on uh, her book, uh, a very troubling book, People Love Dead Jews, reports from a, a haunted present. Did a show with Judy Battalion on female uh, resistance to the Nazis. We did a, a show with Wendy Lauer uh, built around her book, The Ravine, a photograph of a mass murder in a Ukrainian uh, hill. Um, but we haven't actually done a show bringing together Nazis and billionaires, and today we are doing that. Uh, there's a new book out, Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties. Its author is David de Jong. He's joining me from... Uh, David, you're in uh, Holland, is that right? No, yeah, I'm, I'm Dutch originally, but I'm actually in New York. At the moment. Oh, okay, you're joining me from New York. David, this yeah. bringing together of Nazis and billionaires, it's... Um, Indeed. Uh, it, it, it's the sort of thing you expect to appear in movies rather than real life. Were there really Nazi billionaires even in the 1930s and early 40s? To be a billionaire in those days required having huge amounts of money, or are you using that term symbolically? It's. I mean, there were Nazis first, and then they became billionaires after the war. If they had become billionaires during during the Third Reich, I would have called the book Billionaire Nazis. And what exactly does that mean, a billionaire Nazi and a billionaire Nazi? You said they were billionaires after the war, but they were rich industrialists who were sympathetic to the Nazi regime. Yeah. Bar one family in my book, I write about five families in my book. Bar one family, the Porsche Pierre family, which today is called the Volkswagen Group, Porsche and and, uh, Lamborghini and Audi and and Volkswagen, Skoda, Seat. Bentley. Uh, all the other families were already extremely wealthy prior to Hitler seizing power. So one of the myths that the book is also trying to dispel is you, know, you often hear how that the origins of these fortunes, that they were originated during the Third Reich under Hitler, and that, that's simply not correct. They were Most of the people I write about but in the book were already very wealthy uh, prior to Hitler seizing power. You had an op-ed um, in the New York Times earlier this week, uh, actually today, uh, on the heirs of Nazi fortunes and they aren't apologizing. You tend to locate these in the car industry. Is that fair? Um, part of their roots are in the car industry. I mean, you see them from finance to to uh, the food industry. Um, but they are, well, because the car industry is the backbone of the German economy, so you tend particularly post-war, so you tend to 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 find kind of the, the main 
such conglomeration of, of, of billionaires, post-war billionaires um, in the car industry and today, yes, today. So what's the point in the book? I mean, we know there were, um, we know that there were rich Nazis that were industrialists who were sympathetic to the regime. What are you saying that hasn't been said before? My argument is, is in favor of historical transparency. I mean, you have this, what's going on now in Germany, and it's not only contained to Germany, is that you have, for example, BMW and Porsche, who are you know, maintaining global foundations in the name of their founders or their, their saviors, um, who, you know, who, can, who celebrating their business success, but not being transparent about their their war crimes or their memberships with DSS, building sub-concentration camps in Nazi-occupied Poland, employing forced and slave labor en masse. So you're getting a very skewed image of, of history. And that's what this book is 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 you know warning against or is is, is advocating against. It's 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 advocating in favor of historical transparency. And it says, well, if you celebrate people for their business successes, you should also celebrate them for their crime or not celebrate them for their crimes you should also show their crimes because else nobody learns from history you know you have the perverse fact where you today you have the bmw her one foundation which is the motto inspire responsible leadership in the name of a man who saved bmw from bankruptcy in 1959 and made two of his youngest children the richest family in germany but who also built a subconcentration camp in nazi occupied poland um, and dismantled it in late 1944, early 1945, with responsibility over battery factories in Berlin, which, among other people, um, you know, used 500 female slave laborers from concentration camps, um, who helped acquire companies in France seized from Jews, and who employed prisoners of war in this private estate. And, and, and I mean, it's, I think it's, it's totally perverse to have to have a global foundation particularly about BMW, um, which, which in his name, which says inspire responsible leadership. So that's where that that's the argument of the book. It's in favor of historical transparency. David, the person you seem to be talking about in terms of BMW was yeah. Herbert Quant, who now yeah. um, uh, is the man whose name is associated with the BMW Foundation. Um, and of course, again, BMW, of course, being one of Germany's most prominent automotive companies. Um, what are you suggesting that the BMW Foundation should do? Should they take his name down? Should they acknowledge? I, mean, I, I, think, it, I think at the very least they should be transparent about it. And if that's not what they want to do, because by you know by showing the good and bad somebody did, people can learn from history. That's how you inspire responsible leadership. Um, and if that's not what they want to do, they should remove the name. Are they? Uh, are they? Are the people at BMW denying Herbert Quant's association with the Nazis, or are they simply glossing over it? Well, they're glossing over it. They're, they're leaving it out. And they're saying, and their argument is, well, BMW, well Herbert Quant owned BMW yet during the, um, uh, during the Third Reich. So we're just focusing on, on his, uh, you know, on what he did at BMW. Whereas, you see, the spokesperson for the, for the, for Herbert Kwan's two youngest heirs, his two youngest children, who are Germany's wealthiest family and the controlling shareholders of BMW, they say, well, actually, we just replaced the, the part of the biography 
which is also still covering up some stuff, um, because we want to show a more holistic view of Herbert Quant after leaving up a whitewashed version of his biography for for years. It's not just Quant at BMW you talk about in the book. You also talk about a man called Ferry Porsche, uh, yeah. Ferdinand Anton Ernest Porsche, who was the son of Ferdinand Porsche, the founder of Porsche. How is um, Ferry Porsche different or similar to Quant? And the, the stories of Porsche and BMW, how are they similar and different in terms of their association with the Nazis? Different. I mean, very Porsche. You now have the very Porsche Foundation today by 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 the Porsche sports car company. The very Porsche designed the first sports car in, in 1948, but he voluntarily applied to the SS in, in, in 1938. He was admitted as an SS officer in 1941. He never served. Instead, he he well, his father and his brother-in-law were overseeing the Volkswagen factory where they used tens of thousands of people in forced and slave labor. Um, Ferry Porsche oversaw the Porsche uh, design firm in Stuttgart, where he, where they also used hundreds of, of, of forced laborers uh, there as well. After the war, as CEO of, of, of Porsche, he surrounds himself with high-ranking SS, former SS officers. This is Ferry Porsche, right? This is Ferry Porsche, exactly. And then, in 1975, in, in, in the late 1970s, when he puts his first biography, he writes virulently anti-Semitic about the Porsche co-founder Adolf Rosenberger, who was bought out, who was a Jewish man who was bought out by uh, Ferry's father and brother-in-law, uh, co-founders of the Porsche company in 1935, far under the market value of his shares. And, you know, the only reason that there's a Ferry Porsche uh, um, today is because he designed a sports car. David, you write in the New York Times that, and I'm quoting you here, the car industry is quintessentially German, so very central to not just the country's economy, but also its identity. Would a repudiation of these tycoons be a disavowal of national identity? Um, do you think that perhaps these the, the names of these companies, even a company like Porsche, should it change its name? I mean, given mm. that it's clearly named after men who were sympathetic or associated with the Nazi regime. It was actually named after his father, Ferdinand. Um, I don't right. think, I don't, I don't know. I don't think they should rename the Porsche company. I mean, there were three founders of the Porsche company, Ferdinand Porsche, Anton Pierre, uh, and Adolf Rosenberger in 1930. Ferry ends up receiving out of other shares. Um, but no, I don't think Porsche. Porsche could, are are you saying that. that that it's a failure of the foundations or a failure of Germans to repudiate this past? Um, yeah, it's a failure. Yeah, I, I see it as a I see it as a failure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it, a failure of being transparent. I mean. The normal modus operandi in Germany is whenever some kind of scandal breaks, is that you know you commission an academic study which comes out for your family or company commissions an academic study four years ago, and they you know then it's in, it gets published in dense academic German. So the reckoning. So who exactly? My, one of the questions I have is who exactly is the reckoning with? Right. I mean, the vast majority of the victims 
the Third Reich were not German, and were not in Germany. Um, so it, they keep it contained to German to, to Germany in a sense, and they lean on this kind of you know on the collect on, on Germany's collective guilt, um, so that the story kind of never spreads outside of it, uh, which allows them in turn to not be transparent about the Third Reich histories of of, of their patriarchs or of their company founders or said. You argue in um, you you argue, and I, I'm quoting you here. The more time I spend learning about these business business dynasties, their tainted past fortunes and companies, and their desire to ignore or cover up how involved their patriarchs were with the Third Reich, the more I begin to doubt how deep, sincere, and lasting this culture of remembrance in Germany really is. Are you suggesting that the broad swathe of public opinion of Germans that they're they're choosing to forget rather than remember the Nazi atrocity. What I worry about is if you have, you know, your countries, well, this is not only Germany's uh, most powerful and wealthiest families, but Europe's and, and some of the world. If they decide to 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 leave out you know their dark history, what does that say about a wider society? Are these families representative of their society? I mean BMW quants are right about it, the largest. Well, you're, you're, but you're the one bringing it up, David. So, what's your thoughts on this? It, it, does this reflect very poorly on Germany broadly? Uh, yeah, I think it does. I think it. I think it does. I think. I mean, it's, it's shocking that I am the one who has to write about this. You know, a Dutch guy in English, um, um, you know, bringing the story to a global audience. Oh, some of the characters in your book, uh, like uh, Friedrich Flick, and. Yeah. Billionaire German industrialist. I mean, when he died, for example, well, the New York Times uh, obituary at least uh, sure. noted that he was the industrialist who aided Hitler. No one's denying these things, are they? No, they're not denying it. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, they are not being transparent about it. On the Friedrich Flick Foundation, for example, which sits on the board of the uh, of a board of, of, of the Goethe University. Um, there have been many debates in within Germany. Uh, you know, Friedrich Flick's name has been removed of, of, of high schools. But if you go to the website of the Friedrich Flick Foundation, there is no reference to to him being convicted for war crimes and crimes against humanity at Nuremberg. David, how's your work being received in uh, in Germany? Is there a German translation of the book? Yes, there is. Interviews there's views on German media. Um, there's going to be the German is going to be released on May fifth. And um, yeah. so far, no, no German media request. But um, you know. But what? What's your sense? Are you getting sympathetic emails, coverage from people who are thanking you for bringing this stuff up? Do you think that you mm -hmm. might incur the wrath of of German nationalists who say, "Look, this all happened eighty years ago. Very few Germans are even alive now. It's irrelevant for a new German." I haven't had, uh, to be honest, you know, the book has been published today, today's publication day. Uh, I have had gone very, no, no responses so far from Germany. Literally none so far, which is also quite difficult in that they, you know, they tend to catch up a little bit later. This is also a little bit the point of my book. But there are many kinds of Germans. There are progressive Germans. Sure, of course. Green Germans. There are socialist Germans. Yeah. 
are old and young Germans. Do you get a sense of divisions amongst Germans in terms of a response to the kinds of arguments you're making in the book about this transparency? I mean, not yet. I mean, I hope to get to, to get a certain response. I hope to get a debate going within Germany. Um, I love Germany. I lived there for the past four and a half years. My partner is German. Uh, many of my friends are German and they're extremely reflective and, and nuanced and aware of, of the country's history. Um, so I hope that this, this debate comes up. So far, it has not. But bear in mind, the book has only been published today. Could this spill over? Does it have reference in the United States? You're talking to me from New York. Uh, the founder of Ford, for example, was a noted yes. anti-Semite. Should yeah. any association with Ford foundations of one kind or another, there's a huge amount of public money now being that was donated through Ford. Should should we always be reminded of of of, of Henry Ford's racist anti-Semitic past when we look at Ford Foundation material? Uh, no, I mean, they don't name it after uh, Henry Ford. Yes, you're right. That he is a person who, who made the, um, who made the um, company big, but the Ford Foundation already for many, many decades has zero affiliation with the Ford company. But in terms of discussion, any public... So, so, your, so your argument is really focused on foundations rather than just a broad historical memory. No, it's also not. I mean, I'm, I'm giving the I'm giving the examples of foundations, but there's also media prizes, and there's corporate headquarters as well. I remember when I was growing up in North London, a Jewish background. Most all my family and friends were families, friends were Jewish, and we always had this perennial debate about whether or not we should buy German cars. Is that still an issue? Do you think, particularly for Jews, should should Jews even consider buying? Given, given what you write about in your book, a Porsche or a BMW? I think, I think people are free to choose however they want. And I think what, what but then aren't they sort of memorializing and rewarding yeah, some of these figures? I think that's... I think that's... What could happen is that, you know, the, the money you spend on these consumer goods can end up at, you know, as, as these families' dividends, and those dividends can go to maintaining these foundations and these corporate headquarters and these media prizes. I will never say that people should not, should or should not buy a, a product. People should, 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 should decide that for themselves. I mean, there's a fair, there's the, Sarah Silverman, the American comedian, wrote a, a funny song about, you know, Jews buying German cars. And I think it, it should be up to, to people. Well, your, your book's about, reminding Germans broadly that they need to remember. Shouldn't Jews yeah. also remember? Shouldn't you, you, you seem to be having yeah. double standards here? Yeah, I think everybody should should remember. But does that mean you should not buy somebody's uh, somebody's products? I think that's I think that's very I think that's that's very difficult. I mean I would never be one for for, for falling for a boycott of, of somebody's of, uh, of, you know, somebody's product that they, that they produce. David, they have a responsibility to be transparent about it. That, that, that's the yeah, you keep on using this word, transparent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at what point, you know, Judy Battalion, as I said, wrote this wonderful book on yeah. Jewish women who fought, literally fought back against the Nazis. Um, 
Dara Horn's book is still bringing to life, essentially, the dead Jews of Eastern Europe. But at what point do we just have to forget all this? At what point is enough enough on the Holocaust and the we should, we should never. We should never do that. We should, I mean, we should, we should not do that. I mean, that's the whole point of the book is that we should not forget and that these families who have control swaths of the global economy should, should, should at the very least, show the crimes that their patriarchs committed, the people who, who are responsible for their wealth. But is this guilt by association? I mean, the, the, you, you write about the, the granddaughter of Herbert Quant and some of the other relatives of these billionaires. The, the, the daughter really, of Herbert Quant. Okay, well, the daughter. Do, do they really have a responsibility? They had no yeah. association? Yeah, I think with, with great power comes great responsibility, and they inherited massive economic power. Um, which they did pay in political funding and through, through all these mass charitable foundations uh, and through, you know, mass companies. So, yeah, um, um, they, they certainly have a, a, a responsibility. And as you say, that responsibility is simply more transparency, not shutting these foundations down. You simply want them to what? Acknowledge the guilt of their ancestors? Yes. Yes, I would, I would, I would like that. Yeah, yeah, and I would like them to be transparent about it. And if they don't, don't want to do that, they should rename. They should rename it because people don't. They don't. They only learn from history by 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 showing it, by leaving it out. And since these people were at least billionaires, should some of their wealth be channeled, if not to the victims of the Holocaust, to other victims of one kind of genocide or another? In my book, Paid Compensation, in, in, in 2000, to a, to a general uh, compensation fund uh, founded by the German government in agreement with the American government after mass class action lawsuits were filed against them over the 1990s, although they didn't admit any, 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 any guilt or any wrongdoing. So the, the compensation in terms of forced slave labor question has kind of been resolved. We did a show last year with the English writer Peter Gumbel, who argued that Germany in the this was a post Brexit book, essentially, and it was still written when Trump was president. Uh, he, he presented Germany as the beacon of hope that America used to be. It came out of his book, <clears throat> Citizens of Everywhere, Searching for Identity in the Age of Brexit. He's a grew up in England, the descendant of German Jews who reapplied for German citizenship. He's not that unusual, Gumbel. Mm -hmm. No. Given what you write about in your book, do you think that people like Gumbel should be having second thoughts about reclaiming German citizenship? I don't think German, for, I think for many years, undercult German was sort of the moral backbone of, of, of the West. But I think what you've particularly seen in the last couple of weeks following Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine, is actually that Germany has made itself, or the German government under Merkel, under Gerhard Schroeder, made himself very much beholden to to Russia, and which is also why they're now far, you know, except for announcing a, a, a massive military budget, they're not they're not taking they're not doing anything to to make themselves less addicted to Russian or uh, Russian gas, for, for example. Yeah, they they pulled the plug on Nord Stream two. 
Um, but so far, the German response to all this has been very muted. So Germany standing in the West, at least in the response to this crisis, is, is diminishing rapidly. So you think that Germany has chosen to, for, to forget conveniently? You mean in terms of... Well, in terms of that this war is brings many many reminders of the Second World War in, in lots of different ways, attacks on civilians, invasions of other countries. Yeah, I think Germany is, is terrified about doing something wrong. They are afraid of their own power, you know, um, uh, afraid of their own economic power, afraid of their own political power, in a sense, uh, because they do you know what, what, what damage can be or what horrors can be unleashed. unleashed. Um, so often they, they decide to do anything, which in this case, I think is, is, is not the way to go. Are there any models, uh, David, for quote unquote, good Germans, Germans who have chosen to remember who we can use as models for the kind of transparency you're calling for with these yeah, I'm, companies? Yeah, I give, I give the example of the Ryman dynasty, um, which controls many consumer goods, particularly in the US. A rather bizarre backstory there. Their father was a, their father and grandfather were convinced Nazis, their, their, their great aunt. Um, but their father uh, fathered three children with a half Jewish woman whose father was um, deported and murdered in, in Nazi occupied Poland. Um, and they have a foundation, the Alfred Langer Lundecker Foundation, and, and it's yeah, it is. It, it, they've endowed it perpetually with 250 million euros and are being transparent about their about about their history and and about both about both the Nazi patriarchs um, and and their and their among many good things. What kinds of initiatives are the Landacre Foundation? Are they are they they're doing they're doing they're doing you know chair at Oxford in, in genocide studies. They're tracking down still surviving former forced laborers um, during COVID and, and try to give them, um, try to support them. Um, um, they they um, do yeah, invest in a lot of academic and in a lot of educational programs. Do you think the car industry or the the, the money, the power, the, the, the the social networks around the car industry, are they deeply resistant? Are they talking to one another on the phone and saying, this this just has to go away, we're not going to remember this sort of stuff? Or is it just laziness, moral laziness? No, I think they don't. I think you know, Germany, as I know, it's is quite resistant to change. So I think they, it's not moral laziness. It's, it's, it's they rather just not, they rather just still sweep it under the rug, in my opinion. Well, there you have it. Uh, Nazi billionaires, at least in, in metaphorical terms. Um, the new book by uh, David De Jong, it's just out today. Uh, the Dark History of America's, uh, sorry, not America, The Dark History of Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties. Uh, congratulations. That's the right word, David, on the book. I think it's an important reminder of uh, the... The, the, the guilt of, of many wealthy Germans associated with the Nazi regime who weren't necessarily Nazi uh, in formal terms. 
Um, what else, uh, David, should people be reading in April 2022? Any other books that you're reading that you're enjoying? Yeah, I'm reading The Bond King by Mary Childs, which is one of the... Um, yeah, we've books. had Mary on the show, actually. Okay. Yeah, I really, I'm really enjoying that book. It's, it's. If you can talk about a finance book being fun, it's very well written about an important market, the, the bond market. Do you think Bill Gross has a, a kind of moral awareness that perhaps some German billionaires don't have? I don't think he does. No, he doesn't. He doesn't strike me as such. Yeah. yeah. It's a good book. Yeah, and she's a. Yeah. You should watch the interview I do with her. She's she's a very oh, well. uh, she's a very engaging speaker on growth. Yes, uh, I, I, of course, speak in the book. So, and, and finally, uh, David De Jong, the author of Nazi Billionaires. At one point, they did, of course, rule the world. Fortunately, they don't anymore. Uh, who's in charge of the world in April 2022, David De Jong? I, I, I do have to go with a billionaire on this, and I think even if he doesn't get into Bergheim, the famous club in Berlin, you know, Elon Musk seems to be omnipresent, uh, whether he's uh, trying a hostile takeover of Twitter or um, building, you know, opening one of the largest factories outside of Berlin. Uh, I do fear that we're, we're living in a, in a Muskian world.